The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 1 Shock Waves from Tiananmen Square Peking now looks like a city at war. Streets are littered with the burned-out wreckage of buses, trucks and military vehicles. From time to time, plumes of smoke can be seen rising above the city as residents... It was June 1989. It was very hot, and after a good game of tennis, I was sitting in my garden in my white plimsolls and shorts and tennis gear when the phone rang. Salam, it's Becky. I was very frightened immediately because Becky is the old school friend of my sister's, only three years older than me. She lives in Hong Kong. It was her voice, and I thought, she never rings me. Has something happened to my sister in Hong Kong that I don't know about? And then she said, you know I have an uncle and aunt both working at the Chinese embassy in London. This reference to the Chinese embassy is ominous. My radio is still broadcasting news of the Chinese army crackdown on tens of thousands of pro-democracy protesters in Beijing's Tiananmen Square three days ago. Hundreds of unarmed citizens are being reported killed. Becky's voice becomes agitated. My uncle and aunt, they need help. They're going to call you to ask about the price of fur coats in London. What? I'm a television drama director by profession and have had the pleasure of working with many distinguished actors. By contrast, Becky obviously can't act. They are going to call you to ask about the price of fur coats in London. Understand? Oh my God, it must mean that they want to defect. He referred to himself as Johnny and will call you Sam. Okay, so I'm Sam and he's Johnny. Okay. But he will then ask you to verify his family nickname, which is Lai Sok. Uh. You will then have to ask him your nickname in exchange. What is your nickname? Uh, what? It is important to know both nicknames. I'm reminded that Becky used to be a schoolmistress. If I'm not responding like an obedient pupil, it's because the plot has already become so complicated and her acting is getting worse. And then I said, Ajay. That's my nickname. This is the fond nickname given to the youngest son in the family. Okay, I'll call you again later when I've spoken to him. Bye. It was the most bizarre telephone conversation I've ever had in my life. And that's how it all began. A day earlier, I had attended the protest and vigil outside the main Chinese embassy in Portland Place in central London. There were thousands of people there, more Westerners than Chinese. The doors of the embassy were heavily guarded by embassy staff and the London Met Police. Now I imagine that Lai Suk and his wife, in their Chairman Mao uniforms, had been watching from the windows of that building, whilst also secretly making their phone calls to their niece Becky in Hong Kong to ask for ways to buy fur coats in London. The pro-democracy demonstrations in Tiananmen Square had started back in April. 
encouraged by Glasnost in the Soviet Union. By the time President Gorbachev arrived in Beijing for the historic Sino-Soviet summit in mid-May, they had spread all over China. I had initially watched the news reports of the protests with amazement and pride. I was impressed by the students' courage. Unlike my generation of Chinese who were raised to keep our heads down and stay out of trouble with the authorities, it seemed that finally there was hope emerging for a new China. The crowd here saying that now is the critical moment that their campaign for political change must be kept up to the end. But then, on the night of June the fourth. The gossamer-thin veil of tolerance was brutally torn away by a violent clampdown on the civilian demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the centre of Peking. It was unremitting. Units of the People's Liberation Army advanced on Beijing from every cardinal direction. Armoured personnel carriers rammed through the human chains of protesters. And crushed tents where students were sheltering. Soldiers in camouflage uniform opened fire on civilians, using bullets which expanded on entering the body. The tanks pursued those fleeing the square, firing tear gas and indiscriminately mowing down hundreds of people in their path. On June the fifth. The Tiananmen protest was immortalized in the global media by the now notorious image of a lone figure standing defiantly before a convoy of massive tanks. On June the sixth, the Chinese government tried to play down the scale of the atrocities committed, denouncing the protesters as a handful of ruffians who deserved their fate. Hospitals are overflowing. And Chinese sources speak of hundreds or thousands dead or injured. The exact number of dead and wounded remains unclear to this day, because the Chinese government has suppressed the release of any information regarding the incident. Meanwhile, in London, I waited for the phone call that Becky had said I would receive from her uncle. I had my radio on all day, closely following each news update from Beijing. By the weekend of June the tenth, the death toll at Tiananmen Square had risen to over a thousand, according to the estimates by foreign journalists there. But the impotent anger I felt as I listened to the news was now also tinged. With what I can only describe as inappropriate excitement. Once again, I was outside in my garden when the phone rang. I rushed to pick it up, careful not to fall over the newly laid paving. Hey, this is Johnny. A gentle, polite Chinese hello, followed by a curt question. What your nickname? This cloak and dagger exchange already sounded absurd, even in Cantonese. Hi, I'm Sam. My nickname is Adai. I felt quite ridiculous when I had to ask him, "What's yours?" Lai Sok. 
and just as I was preparing to launch into a conversation about the dreadful political events in China, he blurted out, "I need to talk to you about the price of fur coat."、Uh, where can I meet you to talk about buying a fur coat? I asked, standing there in my summer shorts. An awkward silence followed. I am not sure that I want to buy the fur coat yet. Just checking things out. I mean, checking the price. I really had to think fast to continue this peculiar conversation.、Um, well, your Becky already told me that you only need to spend two days to buy the fur coat with me. I said that would be fine. And I'll help you. Got to think about it. I'll call you back. That call was odd, vague, and abrupt. But thankfully, it did not test my rusty classroom Mandarin. We spoke in our native Cantonese dialect, the common language of Southeast China, with words like "fur coat" uttered in English. I had another call later that day with thank heavens, just the initial exchange of nicknames, and no more of the Johnny and Sam business. Lysuk kept asking me my feelings about what happened in Tiananmen Square. I found myself quite inept in expressing myself about something so traumatic while I was. Cooned in my suburban home, living the interesting life of a forty-year-old television director with the freedom and security that those poor students can only dream of. By the third phone call that day, I realized that he was still checking for any sign that I might be a sympathizer for the Chinese government. I understood that he could not even trust his own knees. For her recommendation of this stranger, who might help them defect, because this stranger was also Chinese, albeit from Hong Kong. And then, finally, we arranged to meet. At around six thirty on a still warm summer evening, I parked my second-hand Nissan near Maidavale tube station, with the windows wound down to let in the breeze. I scanned the crowd of commuters making their way home after work. Soon, I spot a Chinese face. This little middle-aged tubby man, maybe just over five foot four inches tall, looking very neat and composed, like a Chinese Danny DeVito, but with the laughter surgically removed at birth. He is certainly not what I expect as the head honcho of the technical and communications department at the Chinese embassy. This is located not at the main headquarters in Portland Place, but in the outpost here in Maida Vale. The man whom I still only know as Lai Sok strolls towards me from a hundred yards away. He casually checks the number plate of my car, and then swiftly opens the door in one balletic move and gets in on the passenger side. Ni hao, Jalam. He greets me using my proper Chinese name. Nevertheless, I decide to initiate his nickname check to show my genuine respect 
for his careful routine. While he is giving me the answer, I notice his left hand winding up the side window. He points to my side. Please close the window. My niece Becky has told you about my problem. No, uh, she just said that you wanted to know about the price of fur coats. A great sigh emanates unexpectedly from his small frame. We are in big trouble, and I wonder if you can give me and my wife a little help. My wife is the head of the family planning unit here at the embassy. Sure, but I need to know what your troubles are. Sitting in the car with all the windows closed, speaking in a mixture of Cantonese and Mandarin, he starts to tell me their life story. Lai Sok was born in the year 1935. He grew up in the southern province of Guangzhou during the years of the Japanese invasion and the civil war between the nationalists and the communists led by Chairman Mao Zedong. It was a period of great hardship and upheaval. Some Chinese families, including my own, escaped and settled in nearby British Hong Kong. Lai Sok was the youngest and brightest in the large family. Hence the nickname Lai Last Sook Uncle, as affectionately used by his niece Becky, who had contacted me. He was bright enough to be sent to the top Tsinghua University up north in Beijing. He trained as a radio engineer and was immediately employed by the Institute of Science and Technological Information, where he met his future wife. During Mao's campaign, known as the Great Leap Forward, Lai Sok and his wife endured and survived the man-made famine, which caused the death of an estimated twenty to forty million people in the country. They raised their only child, a daughter, during the murderous chaos of the Cultural Revolution, which was led by Madame Mao's gang of four and their Red Guards. During this period, the family faced considerable problems with the authorities, who were deeply suspicious of intellectuals. Lai Suk's brother, who was a civil engineer, committed suicide by jumping off a building after having been accused of right-wing thinking. Lai Suk himself was demoted, accused of rightist thoughts, and had to attend self-criticism sessions. Lai Suk and his wife fell foul of the authorities on a number of occasions, and were sent to be re-educated as farm laborers to learn from the peasants, that is, to become slave labor. When one period of learning was temporarily halted, Lai Suk was sent home. But the very same day, his wife was sent to the fields, hundreds of miles away, to do the same duty. I believe everything he tells me. His family's traumatic history during Mao's regime is by no means unique. The death of Mao Zedong in 1976 brought the possibility of rehabilitation. Like millions of Chinese, they were surprised by the speed of the ensuing fall of Madame Mao and the Gang of Four. They gladly embraced the liberation from the hell that had been China through the dark years of their youth. The years when Chairman Deng Xiaoping came to power, 
Those years were our golden years, he describes wistfully. In fact, Deng Xiaoping, the little bottle, an affectionate pun on the name Xiaoping, was the very same man who would later give the order for the tanks and the army to take Tiananmen Square on the night of June the 4th, 1989. Lai Zhuk tells me how he slowly climbed the government ladder through the patronage of people associated with the reformer Zhu Ziyang, who became General Secretary of the Communist Party. In the golden years, he was promoted and allowed to travel to Sweden, India, Japan and the United States as a rising star in science and technology development for the new China. His wife, now referred to as Lai Sum, Lai Last Sum, Aunt, also rose through the ranks in the same department and became in charge of research for family planning. The Chinese government had become so concerned with the population explosion that it had introduced the one-child-per-family rule and enforced abortion for lawbreakers. But it recognised the need for other approaches to make the one-child policy work. The fact that they were allowed together to be out of China more than once and were now in charge of Maida Vale quarters show that they were deeply trusted by the ruling authorities. On top of that, their grown-up married daughter was also allowed to accompany her husband, whom Lai Suk described as a clever software designer, to further his study in computer science in Tokyo. This was a clear sign that the family had influence and favour with the current regime. While I listened to this outpouring of a life full of more than his fair share of peaks and troughs, I can't help but note his many references to radio technologies, science research, the National Technological Information Service in Washington, setting methods of thesaurus used for database. My instinctive reaction is to conjure up another word for him. Spy. Rysook never raises his voice in the car as he tells his story. Instead, is repeatedly punctuated by deep sighs. But how can I help you? I ask him when he has finished. I have ways of getting to Australia. You just need to help me to get out of the embassy. Since he is, after all, a high-ranking official in the Chinese embassy and has worked all over the world, I trust he must have the knowledge and contacts to plan his future even though no details are offered. I understand the need for urgency and secrecy as the news on radio and television is now full of stories of the continuing arrests in China, officials with counter-revolutionary leanings or belonging to the wrong political factions are promptly sent back to China, where their fate was uncertain. I wonder whether his own loyalty was already in question. Did you express any liberal views after the attack in Tiananmen Square? No. He shakes his head. Inside the embassy, we all watched the news in television room that night. Nobody says a word. All you hear are mumbled groans. 
Since that night, nobody discusses, especially with me as head of the department. I picture the 50-odd officials that Lysok has told me occupied the building, all walking past one another the next morning, heads down, just exchanging polite good mornings, but smelling of fear. So, why do you think you're in danger? I have been under patronage of Zhao's supporters for years, and most of them have been arrested in Beijing. Ji Jiang himself is under house arrest. In fact, Zhao would never be released from his house arrest and died in 2005. Your connection to him is enough for you to be sent back to China? Most probably, especially because I talked to the house barber last week. What? Lysuk then describes the life he led inside the six-story Maidave building of the Chinese embassy. All the shops, restaurants and facilities are at the basement level of the building, and everybody has been freely talking there during the spring. We were talking about the gathering of students in Tiananmen Square, discussing democracy and multi-party rule. Some of us were so excited. And you, the boss, were one of them? I was careful, but we have always been openly supportive of the liberal and democratic movement. But not careful enough? I was having my hair cut, and the barber is one of the friendliest people. In our chat, I just expressed that it is time that China talks to the young about their future and about different political systems. After all, me and my wife spent our youth in very dark times. But why would this barber turn you in? Because he will automatically be promoted and gain a lot of privilege for his family in Beijing. The car's windscreen is now clouded with condensation. It feels like a sauna and I have a headache building in this claustrophobic space. It is getting dark outside. Lysuk suddenly panics. It's 9.55. I must get back to beat the curfew at 10.30. You have a curfew? Always. I shall ring you again to help me. Please? He was already halfway out. The open door bringing in a much-needed draught of fresh air. Of course. Do not tell anyone. Wait. Here's my address. I have the presence of mind to bring my card with me and now hand it to him. Grab. Slam. Afterwards, I think Lai Suk's appearance is reminiscent of the then famously diminutive figure of the ruthless Premier Deng. But what surprised me in that first meeting is his lack of leader-like stature. After all, he was then one of the top-ranking diplomats in London, and responsible for making contact with all the leading heads of technology in the UK. After years of being the pariah in the Western world, 
China was hungry to catch up with the latest in science and technology, and the world was equally hungry to get trading with a country of one billion people. Listening to his background in radio engineering and database technology, perhaps I should have asked him whether he was carrying out any other duties such as industrial spying, but I did not. I was all too aware of his present terror. When I got home, I rang to assure his niece Becky in Hong Kong. I told her that I made contact with her uncle, but had no idea what his or my next step should be. How does one get a high-class diplomat and his wife out of a secure building and help them successfully claim asylum as dissidents? There are no guidebooks or pointers, except perhaps in spy movies. Nothing I had learned, even as a television drama director, equipped me for this new role. The three-hour conversation in the car with this complete stranger had left me already beginning to worry about his safety. Remember, this was all before the era of mobile phones and the internet, so we had no texts or social media for me to check whether Lysok and Lysam were okay or not. I began to imagine that the embassy barber was even now pointing an accusatory finger at the couple to the heavies arrived from China to carry out the purge. I pictured them being shoved into the back of a van, driven to a private airfield under the cover of darkness, and flown back to Beijing. Then, at eleven thirty the same night, the phone rang. Is it Jack Lam? How are you? Infuriatingly polite. More to the point, how are you? Everybody is still not talking in the building, but rumors are building up about repatriation, and some already happened in other buildings and departments. I know, the news just came out about a Chinese diplomat being arrested and disappeared. Can you come to Maidenwell tonight at six a.m.? Lysu is issuing instructions. I'm taking them in, but it all feels unreal, as if I'm in a John Le Carre novel. Lysu continues to talk rapidly in Cantonese. The building has a walled forecourt. When I see your car driving slowly south, I shall come out. I've taken down your number plate. I never realized he had memorized that in our last meeting. This is getting more like Tinker Taylor. So you just need to remember the building number and start to drive slowly as you're approaching it. Then stop. Can you do me this favor? Strange way of putting it, I think, even in polite Cantonese speech. Yes, Lysu. Must ring off. That night, I could hardly sleep. After making up the bed in the guest bedroom, which is right next to mine, I had to down a whiskey, hoping that I would not be breathless later on. Without thinking why, I also took out some Chinese ready-made meals from the freezer. I felt slightly ridiculous and increasingly apprehensive. I lay there in the dark. Fully dressed, ready to leave at five a.m. 
At 4am, the phone rang, and Lysuk's now familiar voice blurted, Can you come now? I did not even ask why this sudden change of schedule. Yes, I'm on my way. The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jain Campion and it's a CultureWise production. Will Patrick's nighttime dash across London be successful? Download the next episode to find out.